welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. Another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Ali Kiabani. He's actually a cardiothoracic surgery trainee at the Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. He is a trainee under the program of Dr. Ralph Damiano, who's really one of the surgical pillars of atrial fibrillation treatment. He's a protege of Dr. Jimmy Cox. And we go over a paper that they recently published that really is such a popular and kind of up-and-coming topic nowadays. It's really that interaction between atrial fibrillation and heart failure. And so they published a really interesting article that described their single center experience with the Coxmase 4 procedure in patients who have tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy with heart failure and how patients respond to this approach. So I had a great time with Ali and this conversation. Not only do we talk about the paper, but we also talk about what it's like to be a surgery resident training in such a program and the current state of atrial fibrillation training and residency. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Ali Kiobani about heart failure and atrial fibrillation. All right, everyone. Well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Amin Kionkui. It is such a pleasure today to be speaking with one of our upcoming stars in cardiothoracic surgery. He's a current PGY-7 at the prestigious training program at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Ali Kabani has written some pretty impactful papers in his very early career, transitioning through the 4-3 program at WashU. Ali, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Kunko, for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. So you've written some awesome papers as a resident. I mean, this is pretty impressive. And so that's why I wanted to have you on the show. Your most recent paper really focuses on this relationship that's gotten a lot of press recently in the surgical space, which is that relationship between heart failure and atrial fibrillation. And then more specifically, your paper focused on a population of tachycardia-induced or tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy and that relationship with heart failure, and then specifically how they respond to the Cox-Maze-4 procedure. First of all, congratulations on these papers. Can you walk us through the thinking behind the paper where you looked at tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy and how it responds to the Cox-Maze-4? Absolutely. I, first and foremost, I have to thank uh, all uh, with the support of Dr. Damiano. None of this would have been possible. I was in his lab and with his support, we had some great ideas that we were able to carry on and kind of dig into and see how, how these patients are doing. The first paper we actually published on this tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy was in annals a couple of years ago that we had about 37 consecutive patients who had left ventricular function less than 40%. 
undergoing Cox maze four procedure, whether you, the majority of them were actually standalone maze operation. And you can imagine, you would say, who in the right mind would take these patients with a low EF? You have patients with an EF of 15 to 20% to the operating room for a standalone Cox maze procedure. But these are the patients who really were in chronic AFib, did multiple ablations. Some of them were failed, but not only catheter ablation, but also failed medical therapy. And they just could not get their rate under control. So it essentially showed the boldness of our surgeons taking these folks to the operating room and perform this heroic Cox Maze 4 operation and hope for the best. Now, in the past experience, we had in the animal model that you would do cause tachycardia in this animal model. After a while, their ejection fraction dropped. But as soon as you take away tachyarrhythmia, their ejection fraction gradually recovers. So that was the whole idea behind maybe the fixing their AFib would also help the, the tachycardiac-induced cardiomyopathy. In addition to that, we have some literature and some good results from catheter-based ablation in the medical literature that shows an improvement in their left ventricular function following catheter-based ablation of AFib. So with the same talk, we're like, okay, well, they, if the patient fails catheter ablation, that is an indication for Cox maze. We should try it on these patients. But the patient selection is really the main key point to make sure that the correct patients are taken to the operating room for this operation. Because as you may know, not only can cause heart failure, but heart failure itself can cause AFib. And the reverse relationship, really, the outcomes are not great. And we, you know, if it's a heart failure related AFib, fixing the AFib is typically is not going to reverse the cardiomyopathy. So based on the the literature review, we have selected the patient population based on their left ventricular and diastolic. If it's super dilated, I I believe it's it's more than 61 that is considered dilated cardiomyopathy as opposed to tachycardic-induced cardiomyopathy. All our patients underwent MRI, gadolinium-enhanced MRI, that again is also based on the medical literature that if there is a presence of fibrosis, very unlikely that putting these patients back to sinus rhythm, it will improve their outcome or uh, ejection fraction. So when we excluded all of those, when we take those patients with uh, almost no gadolinium enhancement, uh, which correlates to the amount of fibrosis they have in their left ventricle. And when we look at their, their left ventricular and diastolic dimensions, as long as they fit those criteria, we consider those patients tachycardic-induced cardiomyopathy and we'll take them to the OR. Now, we had, like I said, 37 patients took them to the OR. With, and we considered low EF as EF of less than 40%. Our lowest ejection fraction was 15%. Our mean ejection fraction was 32%. We took them to the OR and all of the majority of the uh, patients had either class three or four classification. And great result, uh, essentially the freedom from atrial fibrillation and atrial tachyarrhythmia was very, very similar to the rest of our cohort. In terms of their left ventricular function, they also dramatically improved up to 22 months of follow-up. I think our median follow-up was about 22 months with significant improvement. The lowest ejection fraction after the maze procedure was 40%. So that, that was automatically above our cutoff to consider someone a low EF. So all, all patients had significant improvement in their ejection fraction. And not only the ejection fraction, but also their NYHA classification. Right. I mean, you make so many important points there. I want to kind of tackle them one at a time. So the first thing that you said that really kind of caught my attention was you have patients with standalone AFib 
who are, have not responded to prior medical therapy or catheter ablation that you guys did such a nice job evaluating to make sure that they were indeed tachycardia induced. And so you evaluated, made sure they didn't have ischemic disease, right? I was reading in the paper, they've either had stress tests or they've had a, right. an angiogram. And you talk about dilated cardiomyopathy, making sure they're left Basically, their LV is not blown out to the point that it's not going to respond. And then what was really interesting was the MRI data. And then I think that sets up such a, an opportunity for success because you've defined this population that their cardiomyopathy is essentially only from their AFib. It's really good to see that because we didn't really have this data before, right? Especially in the surgical space. Like we have you know, studies out of Germany, study, a couple of studies out of the States, a couple of studies out of Italy, which basically have told us in the past that even in patients with depressed EF, if they have some com component of AFib induced and some component of, let's say, valvular cardiomyopathy or ischemic cardiomyopathy, that if you perform an operation, there is a synergistic effect of recapturing AV synchrony and then treating their underlying problem. But we never had a study that showed us that if you have standalone AF-induced cardiomyopathy, that you can actually improve these. So this was pretty remarkable. I mean, yes, it's 37 patients, but it's very clean data. I really enjoyed reading this paper because it really focused on a single patient population. And then your results are phenomenal. Thank you. Essentially, anyone who was in stage four heart failure was able to to be resolved. You had three when you started, you had none when you finished. Mm -hmm. And then the majority of patients essentially went into New York heart classification one heart failure, essentially right. no heart failure. So pretty remarkable. Can you, or can you comment, were you involved at all in any of the patient level conversations? I know you're in training. There's not a lot of continuity sometimes between the clinic in the operating room. So I totally understand if you weren't, but w did you participate with Dr. Damiano or any of the other surgeons in these clinic visits and talking to these patients about their standalone procedure for AFib? I have to say, I think of these 37 patients, 100% of those patients were performed by Dr. Damiano. Okay. In terms of me having an encounter with those patients, no, but being involved with his lab, I always followed him to his clinic. We always chat about the patients and how they're doing preoperatively, how they're doing postoperatively. Like one of our patients, how dramatically they improved. They were on the transplant list. They were in route for a heart transplant. After this maze, maze operation, their EF improved. The NYHA went from four to two. Ejection fraction was about 45% about six months later. Really didn't have to go for a heart transplant. That's they essentially enable the patient non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. We have seen remarkable results, again, on a selected patient population, and that's the key. But unfortunately, I was not involved with, with how the you know, pre-op evaluation, et cetera. We just have to make sure that we exclude all causes of cardiomyopathy before just going with this essentially diagnosis of exclusion. Yeah, exactly. You know, one thing to impart to the audience I think is so important is this idea that an open Cox Maze 4 is a phenomenal operation. In the current space, you know, and, and myself included, there are more and more centers doing hybrid procedures. There are more and more centers doing essentially standalone AFib surgery that's off pump. And we know that from Dr. Odd. He's published a really nice study a year ago or so, which, and we've covered that on the podcast before. But if given the opportunity, if a patient agrees to undergo a Cox Maze 4 procedure, 
it's a wonderful procedure. I mean, you, you've highlighted in, in this specific population, but I know your group has highlighted in other populations also that patients respond really well to the Cox Maze 4 procedure. They have a high degree of freedom from atrial fibrillation off antiarrhythmics. And then in this specific population, essentially reversal of their heart failure. So it's always important to impart that to the audience and any patients that are listening to this podcast that if you do have AFib and that's essentially your lone problem and you've been worked up completely, that getting you out of AFib with an open heart surgery can be an excellent option for them, an excellent opportunity to kind of regain their quality of life. Absolutely. And again, I just wanted to highlight to our audience, this is the last resort for, for these patients. Again, this has been proven in multiple medical literature and by cardiologists. We had the Castle AF trial that they had. They had the camera MRI trial and a study. All of that showed this population would benefit from it. Again, if they fail the catheter-based ablation. Folks may say, okay, well, can I have AV nodal ablation? And unfortunately, that does not work. For whatever reason, ablating the AV node, getting even though you get the patient out of AFib, really their ejection fraction doesn't improve by just pacing them. So that's another point I wanted to make. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, it kind of makes sense that if you just AV nodal ablate and pace them, that there's something about that artificial synchrony that's not going to be yeah. as great as the AV synchrony that we have, you know, natively, whether that's because there's some neurohormonal regulation that we bypass with AV nodal, you know, AV nodal pacing, who knows? I'm sure there's a cardiologist out there way smarter than me that understands that. But no, it it definitely makes sense that if you can restore native AV synchrony, that these patients would do better than AV nodal ablation. You know, what's, what's remarkable too, is we've learned from the catheter-based data, especially like you had mentioned, Chimera MRI or even Castle, that you don't need to necessarily restore patients back to 100% normal sinus rhythm all the time. You know, we've learned that just by reducing AF burden that patients improve. Can you talk to us again about your results as far as normal sinus rhythm on and off antiarrhythmic medications in this specific group? You mean in the heart failure patients? And yeah, in, in, in your tachycardia paper, from what I remember, it was, you were very successful. Yeah, absolutely. So I think my, our overall freedom from atrial tachyarrhythmia was 94% two years. We had 97, 97, 94, 94, three months, six months, 12 months, and 24 months. And off antiarrhythmic drugs, at three months, we have 77%, but I'll get to you why. But then at six months, we have 93%. At one year, we had a 94% at two years. These are patients off antiarrhythmics in sinus rhythm. Now, you would say, okay, why is it 77% at three months? And the reason for it, the majority of patients are still on antiarrhythmic drugs three months after surgery. Our practice is, has been to continue it for two to three months postoperatively. Yeah, and that totally makes sense. And we have the same sort of reveal in our data as well. That three-month success rate tends to look lower on paper it's just because folks are on antiarrhythmic. So I just wanted you to point that out because for the audience, this is the real deal. I mean, you're talking about 90% greater freedom from atrial tachyarrhythmias, HRS guideline, less than 30 seconds off antiarrhythmics in a low EF, depressed EF population. So again, whether it's surgeons out there listening, patients out there listening, if you're able to evaluate these patients down to this kind of pure tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy population, that 
there is not only a huge opportunity to restore normal sinus rhythm, and you shouldn't fear that, neither the surgeon or the patients should fear that, but that with that comes this amazing opportunity to restore their healthy function. Okay, so are there any other points you wanna you wanna make about this this excellent paper that you you co-authored your first authored co-authored? No, I think that that's pretty much it. I have to say we could do this not only through astronomy but also right mini trochotomy. Yeah, which so which we won't necessarily tend- have to get undergo astronomy for this now. Right. And patients always tend to like that option better too, yeah. whether it ultimately plays out, who knows, but you know, the optics of a, a right thoracotomy patients sure seem to like that conversation in clinic way better than the, the sternotomy. So absolutely, I want to change gears a little bit. I want to pick your brain. So I trained back in, let's see, 2012 through 15. And so I can tell you at the time, at UVA and at Cedars, we were doing our best to learn how to do AFib surgery. And I, I wonder what it's like now as, as a trainee. Obviously, you're one, you're with one of the great AFib surgeons, Dr. Damiano, a protege of Dr. Cox. Could you walk me through what that process is like as a, as a trainee nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not sure. So I guess and the number one question is, do we all get very similar experience and or training across the board in different institutions? And probably the answer is no. And that's probably because some, some surgeons are still skeptical of performing the maze operation or, or adding, not forget about the standalone, but just adding the Cox maze operation to whatever concomitant operation they're doing. I got lucky that I started getting involved with just researching atrial fibrillation, designing and or experimenting different tools and different devices, particularly with from in year 2017. And uh, that was, I was a PGY three, the first year in the lab. After I finished three years of general surgery, I went to the lab for two years with Dr. Damiano. So I had the advantage of, you know, getting a, a little bit of an early exposure with that. In fact, my, one of the research that I'm very proud of, is, it was published last year in Annals is checking the atricure clamp because sometimes we would we would see you know we get the beep 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 and the device tells us oh you're transmural but was it really transmural or not we tested in the explanted heart cardioplegically arrested hearts that were being rejected for heart transplantation we would go regardless of the timing of the of the day for procurement and precurious heart bring it to the lab and test this clamp on we would make exactly the same cox maze for lesion set so that was like probably i would say the closest i got as a surgical resident to performing the biatrial maze operation on a heart, which was great because, you know, no matter how many videos you see, Cotchman's operation, even though it's, you know, you may think it's easy, it's not easy. <laughs> biatrial Cotchman, at least for me, it wasn't easy. It took, it took me two hearts to at the end, the third heart, I was like, oh my God, now I get it. The training for it is important. And I think with the support of the industry, we are able to get more people attracted and get more people trained for uh, to be ready to perform this operation. You know, absolutely, absolutely. So, okay, so that's that's new information to me. So you, it took you about three hearts, ex vivo hearts, ex vivo, ex vivo yeah. hearts, to kind of completely grasp the Cox Maze Four lesion set in ex vivo. Ex vivo, right, right. Okay, so let's. So I'm gonna pick your brain a little more. So, where are you now as far as performing in in 
Devo. <laughs> Cox so Maze 4. We just did Esternotomy, uh, concomitant mitral biatrial maze so with Dr. Damiana just about, we finished about four hours ago. So I get it all now. It's amazing. In terms of the training, you know, depending on how sick the patients are and how fast we have to come off pump, obviously, and also depending on where you are with your training, uh, you get to do different parts of it. But I would say coming from this program, all our fellows would be comfortable performing the biatrial maze. That's great to hear. Maze operation, yeah. It goes through every step. We have a lot of videos published in both in CTSnet, everywhere else, and almost every national meeting, we have, we have some sort of influence on the arrhythmia surgery. Absolutely. Can you remember to about how many cases it took you to kind of feel comfortable doing the Cox maze for on a, on a patient? I don't think I'm still comfortable. I still have two more years of training, <laughs> okay. training to do. So yes, by far, I wouldn't do it with myself. So I wouldn't do it to my patient. Gotcha. So, Understood. But I think if I have a mentor like Dr. Damiano is standing behind me. I, I think I would, for the most, I would be able to probably do, I would probably be able to do about 60% of the left side lesion and 100% of the right side lesions on my own. That's excellent. That's great. No, you're totally right. You know, unfortunately, in our training programs nowadays, there aren't a lot of AFib zealots who are out there teaching. It definitely is a, a kind of a, a niche practice, it's if you will. Yeah. And, uh, you know, programs like WashU are just invaluable because of people like Dr. Damiano and all the trainees, because ultimately, you know, in this space, we need more surgeons who are not only interested in AFib surgery, but who can perform it well. And yeah. so, you know, we know that, you know, we expect the population of AFib to double by 25th. There's going to be 20 million patients out there with AFib that need to get treated. And by one way or another, whether it's medical therapy catheter ablation, surgery, and, you know, and we are learning more and more that the earlier we intervene on these patients, the better. So we definitely need surgeons who are going to be capable of providing these skills. So what's on the horizon for Dr. Kiyobani? Obviously you're, you're still in training, but I would love to hear about any projects you can uh, talk to us about. Well, what are, what are you and Dr. Damiano looking at uh, moving forward? As of right now, I, I think my next project, it, will, it probably won't be AFib related. Probably looking at to see how the our valvular surgery patients are doing, different approach, right mini versus sternotomy. But in terms of AFib, you know, when you go, to, when you have that two years in the lab, you get very good exposure. You see a lot of the outcomes and it's good because you'll be able to mentor the more junior uh, research fellows who come into the lab. And I'm somewhat involved with that. But like I said, the, the, the most recent project that I was involved right before I come out of the lab was this AJQ clamp device that we were doing on the explanted heart, which was very helpful to be able to see it, see the histology, see what happens to the, the myocardium within 24 hours after the ablation. Right. You know? you know, and that's been a practice changing study, which must be pretty cool to be part of. You know, I, I heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember the atricure course that I was with Dr. Damiano that day. I can't remember where we were, if it was in Chicago or where we were, but he was there and he did a, he did a presentation on the data, kind of a breaking news, kind of, you know, up to date from that day, it changed practice. Since those results came out, we've all been doing the double clamp. Double clamp. It's affectionately known as the Damiano double. And oh, is so, that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we've all been doing that. And, uh, you know, we hope that it, it, it provides an added benefit to the patients. Yeah. 
So, I mean, we we saw a dramatic change. Histolo- if you can see things histologically and understanding, I definitely think it would correlate to electrical conductance. Unfortunately, we can't check the electrical conductance, right? 24 hours later, unless you do it like an animal study or something like that. Right, absolutely. But the problem is in an animal study, there's really no uh, myocardial fat. So it's hard. Because it's, it's hard to experience it because with a single, single ablation, almost all of them are, in fact, 100% of them are transmural. Right, right. No, no, you're right. And, you know, we have, we have, we're looking at some interesting data now, again, using that single clamp versus double clamp in our hybrid population, because we, we are able to map them at the second stage. They all get endocardial mapping at the second stage. So that's right. So we're able to, yeah, so we're able to evaluate the clamping technique. So we have an abstract in right now. So unfortunately I can't reveal that data here today, but um, hopefully we can, uh, we can talk about that forward. So we'll shoot. This has been awesome. You know, again, congratulations on making such a huge impact early on in your career. I know we all look forward to see what else you have on the dock and what you have coming up with publications. You only have a couple more years of training. So I'm sure when you finish at WashU, you'll be a fantastic AFib surgeon and global surgeon in general. You have so many great mentors there. No, so please. thank you for your time. Thanks but for thank coming up on the me. program. Dr. Kanko, I, I, I got to say one more thing. Absolutely. Whoever is interested in doing the maze, I may be biased, but when I, when I look at all our, our own data, biatrial maze is by far superior just doing a very limited maze. So I think that's another emphasis. I think the audience, I'd like to, to share what, what I saw in the lab. When you see all the data, data is data. You just have to go with it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. The lesion set as set out by Dr. Cox and yeah. as executed by yourselves at WashU with Dr. Damiano, with NIV at, at White Oak, with, with the uh, University of Maryland group. That lesion set has been proven over and over and over yeah. again to be our most robust ability to terminate AF and to reduce the risk of recurrence. So no, I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. Biatrial maze is, is the way. We are, we are only doing very on a very, very, very selected patient population, just the left side only. Right. But that's pretty much it. All right. I love it. All right. Well, it's again, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for all the all the education you've provided us with your research. And uh, we'd look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you, Dr. Kimberly. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ali. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com and check out our Twitter feed at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.